welcome to the podcast guys thank you for listening i'm sat here with chris o'connor and this is with neil smedley the kingpin of king kobe he um sat down with us at weirwood hall and chris we did talk i think it's fair to say we're brutally honest it was a really really honest chat yeah we got into some really deep stuff if you, if you don't know Neil, I would say go back and listen to his podcast. I think he's done two with Make It Masterminds. Yeah. Make It Masterminds. And I think he's done one called The All Stars Podcast. But if you want to get a bit more about him and how he set up King Kobe, um, go back and listen to those. And yeah, we talked about everything from celebrity culture, meaning in life, male suicide and depression, mm-hmm. introversion, extroversion. And um, yeah, he's a very, very interesting guy. And you know, one of the most brutally honest people you'll come across, whether you agree with him or not, you have to respect. He's very thought through in what he thinks. Yeah, articulates himself very well, very authentic, very real. And um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed this chat. And I think it'd be great to get him on again. I do want to mention that there will be some opposing views, I think, in the conversation, maybe conflicting views and, and opinions. But we have a really good, honest, open chat in vision to make headway in, in what's going on with in men's lives and, and mental health. And Neil was really honest and, and open. We appreciate him coming down to share his opinion. And without going too much into it, enjoy the podcast. Oh, Stevie, we just had a tweet in. Yeah. Um, someone said, oh, big fan of the podcast. The best one out at the moment. Loving every episode. Quick question for Stevie. If I was to buy a house... What mortgage company would you recommend? Easy, that, mate, because the sponsor of our podcast, the Mansali podcast, is Response Mortgages. I've had a good relationship with Andrew Quinn down there for a long time, mate, and um, makes a seamless process out of buying a house out of a remortgage, any service that you need for your house, really. So a big shout-out to them, boys. Big shout-out to them. We will put the link in the show notes for this, and you can have a look if you are in need of a good, honest mortgage broker. Enjoy the pod. Boom, we're on then. Um, good to have you here, Neil. I cool. want to intro, I've come up with this five minutes before we sat down. Chris didn't really like it, but you are the King Kobe <laughs> kingpin, aren't I didn't you? say I didn't really like it. It's like, you like, called me over it's like you come up with something groundbreaking. <laughs> it's not something you'd write, is it? But Yeah, right. it's obvious play of words. But yeah, I guess, <laughs> I, guess yeah. I am, yeah. It's good to have you here, mate. Thank um, you. And um, we finally got you in and, and we finally sat down for a podcast, which is good with Chris's... Me and Chris have both listened to the the podcast for the Make It Masterminds guys. Mm. And, There's two um, with them, yeah. And yeah, definitely worth going back and listening to. Uh, and particularly the first one. one gives you like a good bio of you coming up, and yeah, it's a big overview of King Kobe and how we all got started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't always want to cover too much ground on podcasts because I think for listeners, if you listen to it before, and also for people, you know, saying the same thing over mm. and over again can be yeah. quite um, tedious. So yeah, I definitely recommend giving that a listen for yeah. people. And the All Stars sure. podcast, which is I think out in January. Yeah, um, yeah, which yeah. Is another good one. One of them's out now, I think, and we did one last week that we've wrapped up, which is out in two or three weeks' time. Cool. So, yeah, give those a listen, guys. But, um, yeah, if you want to give a quick kind of like short overview um, of yourself, just, yeah. Yeah, so we, well, I started King Kobe um, nine years ago now. We went to our ninth year. Um, we were just a, a barbershop. Well, actually, we didn't start as a barbershop. We started as like a male cosmetics firm, um, which just it bombed, just didn't work, didn't work at all. And anyway, to cut a long story short, we we emerged into a barbershop. Um, we've now just opened our fourth shop in Newcastle um, two oh. weeks ago. Wow. Um, we've got the product range and the clothing range. Um, we started off with just me, my brother, and one guy who worked for us. 
Um, and last week we took on our 32nd member of staff. So it's been, it's been a huge explosion in the last nine years. And it kind of came about, um, like you said, your first business was kind of failing, wasn't it? And you said you had like, three months capital left and you just yeah, thought... Yeah, King, Cur- King Curry was essentially... I mean, a lot of guys take too much credit for their own, um, their own achievements. Ours was, was, a, was an accident, it was a fluke. Um, so the first business was failing. Um, we, were just, we started off really naively. We had like five grand, which is nowhere near enough to do what we were trying to do. So we got, yeah, we got nine months in, we had three months capital left in the bank um, and it was game over. We were ticking down the clock until we had to make ourselves bankrupt. Um, and one day, completely out of the blue, a kid called Sandy Minto, he walked in off the street, he was 17 or 18 at the time and said, do you have any positions for barbers? I'm just qualified. Which was a strange thing for him to ask because we weren't a barbershop. Yeah. So, um, and at that point, I was just nice. And I just, I just, I, I humoured him. I mm-hmm. took his CV off him. He had some tattoos, I had some tattoos. We, 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 we exchanged platitudes about that for a while. Um, Give it, didn't give it a second thought until the evening when I went home and I was thinking it over in my mind. I was like, well, we've got three months left and we're done. Like, it's game over. So why not spend the last three months capital we've got giving this kid a shout? Um, we had a basement. We converted the basement. We spent about 500 quid, not a lot of money. Got a chair and a sink down there. Um, got him back in. We couldn't afford to pay him. We paid him his train fare from Huddersfield. Um, and that was it. And every now and then I'd throw him a 10 or 15 quid. Mm. I felt guilty we weren't making any money. And slowly it, it led to the turnaround of King Kobe and, and that was it. That's the best CV he's ever handed in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was insane. So, I mean, Sandy's gone on to open his own barbershop now as well with a couple of friends. Um, but yeah, without, without that chance meeting, that 17-year-old walking off the street, um, King Kobe wouldn't have happened. We do that a lot in lives, isn't it? You kind of look back in your life and it's like, like a narrative Mm. And you kind of think there's always these turning points. I imagine I didn't meet him or imagine I didn't yeah. go there. And they're huge. And that must be like a massive one for you. If that guy didn't hand in the CV, like... I would have been done. I'd have, I'd have gone back to social work. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I would have done. That was, that was my plan. But yeah, that's why I can't stand it when you get these guys that, that tell you that they're self-made. Yeah, yeah, nobody, yeah. Nobody's self-made. There's no, lots um, more variables to come into it before. Huge, it's loads of variables. But yeah, I, I would never voluntarily have thought the idea of having a barbershop. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, it's this great idea. And you've got to be careful because people blow a lot of smoke up your ass. Mm. It wasn't even my idea. We executed it pretty well, but it wasn't my idea. If it wasn't for that 17 year old kid, this would never have happened. But what you've done is you've kind of made it more than just a barbershop, right? Like there's a lot about mm. your ethos and yeah. the whole brand is kind of what's been the success of it as well as the original idea. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, that's, that's the entire success. So we wanted the, the brand to just be an extension of who we were as men. Um, so that's why we implemented the, the brotherhood feel and the family first feel and the mediocrity is a sin. And we wanted, we, don't, we never, we never wanted to do anything that was making money for the sake of making money. Um, again, we're not naive. I've got bills to pay, mm. but if it was just for the sake of making money, I wasn't interested. So it had to be more than that. So yeah, we made as best we could, we wanted the brand to be an extension of what it is that, that we thought and felt and the way that we thought was best to, you know, to implement you know, your life into the world. And I think we've done that relatively successfully. So yeah. Cool, because I'll be honest, when I first, um, when I listened to your first podcast, I thought it was going to be one of those, there's so many of these podcasts out there, like you said, self-made businessmen, they give you all these kind of cliche platitudes and it's all about money and I'm not on Instagram, but their Instagram is all about the cars they've got. Yeah. And I thought it might have been another one of those, yeah, yeah. but you're kind of, even though you've gone down the route of setting up your own business, you're almost like anti-business for entrepreneur in a I lot of ways. Business. I hate it. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like interesting that a lot of people will probably presume that you're in line with a lot of those sort of yeah. ideals when you're actually kind of the opposite. Yeah, we are the opposite, and I think again, you've got to be when you when you look back and self reflect. So when we first started, it was not not about making money. We managed to find a little niche where 
it was just me and five friends and we were having fun. That's what mm. it was. We were having fun. We were keeping the beer lifts at bay. There was no real genuine thought into how can we expand this and make it bigger. We just never had those thoughts. It was like, right, cool. We've got a bit of money. The rent's paid. Everything's good. We can just carry on having fun. But we were also living in a bit of a Neverland that we'd created for ourselves. And that wasn't real either. So there came a point probably two or three years ago when we took the step from being five guys in the shop having fun to going, oh shit, we're, make, we're making money now. And how do we make this bigger? And we had to kind of cast off the naivety of the, you know, like our youth, so to speak, mm-hmm. and go, right, how do we now combine the fact that we are businessmen, we are making money, but we don't want to be overwhelmed by that mentality. Um, so we had to do a lot of growing up. And that's, that, that's been the most difficult thing is, right, how do we now step up and become more business-minded without losing the ethos that got us popular in the first place? Yeah. And that's that's been a difficult path to walk. Because that's a huge challenge, right? You can have five good friends, but as soon as money and profit starts coming in with people's personalities and mm. like, have you found challenges around that? Like, everything changes everything when you start making money. And, yeah. Everything changes. I mean, I don't, I don't think I've changed, although I'm sure you'll meet people that will tell you that I have. Um, so I'm not naive to that. But yeah, as soon as you start making money, everything changes. And that's been one of the most disappointing things that I've, mm. I've learned. And probably one of the most like um, humbling, sobering things that I've learned. Yeah. But you, you start making money and it's great because everyone starts making money. So we wanted to find a way to so say, like, right, King Cobra is making money. Let's spread that out as much as we can to everybody. Um, and we'll, we want to be this structure where there's no hierarchies. And to a certain extent, that just doesn't work. Mm. It just doesn't work. Did you, did you feel like the hierarchy needed to be in there? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a Jordan Peterson thing that he talks yeah, about. Yeah, it is. And in fact, it was Peterson that changed my mind on all that thing. Yeah. Because I mean, up until sort of, I discovered Peterson, what, three years ago. And I can genuinely say he's one of the men that's been life-changing for me. Yeah. That's pre-Joe Rogan as well then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Because he yeah, exploded yeah. after that. But. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, I'd heard about him before the Rogan thing, but the Rogan thing was when he really, yeah, really yeah. took off for me. But um, he talked about the hierarchy thing. It's, look, some guys met more money than other guys. Some guys are more effective than other guys. Um, and for me, that was always an uncomfortable truth because for the longest part, all through my 20s and early 30s, I would happily describe myself as a socialist. I was anti-capitalist. Very mm. liberal, very left-leaning. Um, and as much as I'm still attached to those ideologies to a certain extent, there's a lot of naivety that underpins that. There's a real world somehow that you've got to integrate with that ideology. So that's what we found really challenging. And to be honest, I'm still grappling with that now. I'm mm. still not entirely sure how that fits for me. Um, yeah. But whatever your ideology is, um, the bills have to be paid and we have to make money and yeah. we, we have to find a way to justify um, this this. What's the word? Find a way to justify the things that we believe with with the fact that there's a real world out there. Yeah. There's um. Have you heard of William McCaskill? Yes. He's done a podcast yeah. on Joe Rogan. He's done Sam Harris. But his thoughts on that kind of changed my life in the sense that he's kind of a bit counterintuitive of how you think about making a difference. And he said there was a guy who was really uh, like financial genius, like really good at maths. And he said, um, I don't want to go and work in the city. I want to make a difference. And I want to volunteer and get into, uh, I think, I can't remember what the career was, but a low paid career doing some volunteering work. Mm. And, and then actually when they kind of broke down the data and assessed it, he said, well, why don't you go and work in the city and you can give most of it away? And then he goes through all that. He's very meticulous about the mathematics of it all. And, and he says, well, these are the amount of lives you can save if you made, went in the city and gave away 50% of your income. And this is the difference you'd make if you worked in volunteering. Might feel like you make a lot of difference, see a lot of personal connections, yeah. <clears throat> but if you really want to make a difference, you can make more of a difference. So he's gone into the city, he's earned like hundreds of thousands and he gives, I think, 80% of it away. Yeah. And he will, that's a way of him working in the capitalist system, but still staying true to his, yeah. his morals. And 
yeah, it's been a big impact on me on my life. Um, cause I remember in one of the podcasts you reference, um, I think one of the lads said, oh, well, life doesn't mean anything. Mm. Um, and then you said, well, if you see a child suffering and you help it, well, there's meaning yeah. there, isn't it? Cause yeah. you're alleviating suffering. Yeah. Um, and there's a, a, a thought experiment by Peter Singer. Um, who says, if you walk past a child and they're drowning, what do you do? And everyone says, well, you know, I'd save them. I'd take them out. Mm. And he says, well, that's real world. That's happening every day. There are children suffering and we have the means to help them, but we don't because of the, the distance, basically. Yeah. Um, and I found that quite a powerful argument when I was doing philosophy. Um, and yeah, you just give yourself an anecdote for nihilism. Yeah. Exactly, which is exactly what it is. Mm. Well, so I, I saw it as more um, as, at first I was like, yeah, I found it pretty um, kind of distressing and his you know his response back then it was 20 30 years ago he wrote this famous paper about it he kind of says we should all give up everything until we get the baseline poverty until we alleviate suffering william mccaskill kind of rewritten it said well if you factor in our personalities and that's impossible mm. no one's going to go along with that mm. so he says how about people give 10 percent of their income and you know you can still live a good life you're still making a difference so i do that and i think I, it actually makes me more entrepreneurial actually because mm. I didn't really care about money too much before but now I think actually the more I earn the more I can give if i yeah. a bit tight on the next commission I go actually I should get this for this commission then it means I can give more away so it's ways of like it's a good reason kind of like to, yeah it's a good reason and to. it's made me think much more money focused now as before I kind of like yourself didn't every time I thought about money I felt a bit guilty about it mm. um, but I've kind of like shifted my thinking on that so um I thought it was something I'd bring up because a lot of your thinking seemed to align with what I'd read in that book. And yeah, well, I think the, the one you, <clears throat> a lot of people, well, I did for a long time. You operate on the negative assumption that capitalism is evil, mm. or that all forms of capitalism are evil. Which the more I think about it now, I'm kind of embarrassed that I ever thought that because, of course, that that can't be true. It's just a system. It operates yeah. on a false premise. Yeah, it's just a system, and we're all capitalists, I and mean, we have to be capitalism. And actually, when you think about it, capitalism is, despite all its flaws, capitalism's flawed. It's deeply flawed. Mm. There's no question of that. But capitalism is without doubt the best economic system that we've ever yeah. invented. Yeah. If you want proof, just look at history, isn't it? But yeah. Yeah. Um, every socialist state has failed and failed massively. So you're providing a false promise. So capitalism works. It works exceptionally well. Um, it doesn't work for everybody. Obviously, there are flaws that are inherent in the system, but that doesn't mean to say that you abandon the system. It means that you address the flaws. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of guys on the socialist spectrum, the liberal spectrum, they want to destroy the system, which is just it's such a naive philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. If a system is 80%, works 80% of the time, then you address the 20% of the time it doesn't work. You don't throw out the 80% and start again. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, but this is relatively new for me. I mean, this is only the last four or five years I, I, I've started to look at this. Um, I was a hardened socialist before, which I find kind of embarrassing now, but. Right, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. And, and I think that you said that the capitalism thing as well, there's an assumption that everyone that wants to make money is somehow fundamentally evil. And the only reason that you want to make money is to do cooking, you know, off strippers mm -hmm. and yeah. to buy Ferraris and do expensive holidays which again, it's just, that's not how most people live. Mm. And if you know that you're a good guy and I know I'm a good guy, you know, you're a good guy. Wouldn't you rather that you had, um, an off balanced, um, center of wealth than somebody that didn't have the morals and the, the mentality that you do, because you know, you're going to do more good with it. Very good point. And it is, does align with what you've mentioned there, Chris. And I remember listening to, um, the make it mastermind podcast with you, Neil, and it did surprise me. It's probably the same as you. It did surprise me just thinking, um, It'd be interesting to know your journey to this. I know you, you spoke about John Peterson kind mm. of changing a lot of what you mentioned there and, and, and your thinking. Um, but the, one of the massive things that stood out for me, that, that podcast, was how you always come back to the truth. 
yeah. of, mm. of of your life, of your situation. And, and I guess that comes with knowing yourself. I know mm. you, you had that little anecdote with, I think it might have been an ex-girlfriend who, who, yeah, who yeah. kind of dispelled. Stood up to me for the first time. Yeah. 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 And said um, a truth, which probably hurt, didn't it? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> which yeah. hurts a lot. A lot of people, yeah, yeah. it hurts the truth because you can navigate and, and, and false beliefs and, and, and that narrative that, that you believe in. But I guess when you get down to the truth, you, you well, you've not got anything to hide really. No. Um, yeah. Well, uh, well, anecdotally, actually we've all got tons to hide and that's mm. why the truth is so difficult for most people. Um, I ended up getting the truth thrown on my forehead, but it's, um, yeah, we've all got tons to hide, mm. tons and tons to hide. So throughout my twenties and early thirties, I hid behind the fact that I was articulate. I hid behind the fact that I had lots of friends um, those kind of things always came quite naturally mm. to me. Um, I hid behind the fact that I was able to start this business and that gave me a place to hide. And all these things did was give me a place to hide from the truthfulness of myself. And when I was by myself, you know, literally and figuratively, you know, three in the morning when, you, when you're naked in your own mind, I knew I wasn't the person that everybody thought that I was. And I also knew that I wasn't the person that deep down I wanted to be. So even though I was hiding and I was very successful at hiding and that's the danger with yeah. hiding, you can become super successful at it. But you can you know, also hide to yourself. Like you can lie to yourself. Which is what we do all the time. So I just became aligned to looking at my own life and taking on a real deep sense of personal responsibility. I wanted to know, genuinely know how much of the feelings of my own life was I directly responsible for. So I can, I can do away with any kind of victim culture or blaming you know, when my mum and dad did this and then the mm. school system let me down and this system let me mm. down and you know, that guy wasn't nice to me. I was like, no, how much of, how much of my own feelings am I directly responsible for? And the reality is I was responsible for 99.9% .9 of it. And that's a real terrible thing to realise when you look at your own life and you realise that 95%, 99% of who you are is a fabrication. And it's a fabrication of ego, of stubbornness, um, of past mistakes or of, You've taken a little bit of that person and this person and you've created something that actually, even though it does a good job of fooling most of the people most of the time, it's not real mm. and there's no foundation to it. And that's that was my 20s. That's, that's what I did. I did that throughout my 20s. And then knew that it wasn't getting me anywhere. So on the surface, I was very successful. Got this great business, got a family, got two beautiful kids, all these things. But deep down, I knew that it wasn't all real. There was a lot mm. of smoke commitments to it. I think that... I'm always banging the drum um, about knowing your values. And I yeah. guess that's, you know, a bit of knowing yourself. And um, I think you pick up values. I think values are different to, to ego and all that <clears> sort of stuff because they're, they're deep-rooted things. They're almost like a sail on a ship. Um, and I know you mentioned on that previous podcast as well about um, linking your behaviours to it. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you came up with a, a good kind of reason or... Um, contributing factor to why people feel depressed, why people feel they're away from themselves because their values aren't being replicated in, in their behaviours in daily life, Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, I think is a massive thing. And, and I think back to 2014 when I was playing, um, I was back from injury and I was back playing actually on the field, but I wasn't able to do what I'd always done. All I'd known is rugby. Mm. Um, there's there's different factors like you know being being a selfless player and 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 I guess being a leader as as well. You know you can't you can't put that out there on the field because if you're not getting picked, if you're not you're not yeah. you're not striving to do what you've always done, and you kind of get get a bit away from from what you know and and how you're always used to operating. You're almost not in sync, I guess. Um, so I think to to now in this situation when I'm injured, what are the what are the things that I can tick off? What are the things that I can 
tick off for me as a human being that I've mm. always known that works for me, that's that's good for other people, um, even if I'm not playing. Um, and that's why mentality has mm. kind of been there. And it's, it's almost yeah. like, I don't know. It's almost like a crutch in a way that when I am injured, that I can I can fall back on and and and, and meet people like you, connect yeah. with people like you. Um, so I think that's a massive, massive thing. Um, when you do talk about mental health, when you when you do talk about um, adversity that people go through, you you do need you need that 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 sense of, of values <clears throat> or that sense of I, I I think it's a bit of a playbook, you know. When I, well, I'm in, out injured. Because it's right. I know what I need to do now. I can't control what's just happened, but I know what I need to do and what I can control. I think that's a built-up sense, a built-up kind of responsibility that, that you gain over the years. Um, but I'd like to. Well, I guess I'd like to hear your viewpoint on it and, and what you think to to that. Um, yeah. So the, obviously, the, the mental health thing at the moment has become it's, well, it's become it's almost become its own kind of cottage industry, hasn't it? Yeah. And that isn't to say that mental health is not important. Of course, mental health is important. And of course, male suicide is important and meaning is important and truth is important. But all of these things, at least from my perspective, seem to have been commercialized a little bit. Every time I go on Instagram now, there's, there's an influencer who now describe themselves as a mental health advocate mm. without ever really yeah. attempting to address what the fuck that means. Yeah. And it just seems to be the next social justice movement. And that isn't to say it's not important. It's very mm. important. But we, I, I honestly think we're addressing it in the wrong ways. So we talk about a mental health epidemic. That there is no epidemic. There just isn't. Suicide rates have been stable for the last They're years. the exact same as they have been. Exact same. In fact, if anything, from 2017 to now, there's been a steep decline. Especially yeah, it's especially the first time, UK. actually, there's been a bit of a decline. So there's no yeah, epidemic. There's no epidemic at all. And mental health has existed. Plato and Aristotle spoke about depression 2,000 years ago. So we need to get honest about the discussion. Um, and I think what we need to try and do is to change the narrative about it. So we look at mental health as something that we want to eradicate. Yeah, we almost mm. treat it in the same way that, that we did slavery in the 1940s. How do we eradicate this problem? It's, it's the wrong mode of being. You can't eradicate something that is inherently built into the human experience. By nature of your humanity, you will feel anxious and depressed lots of the time. Mm. Yeah. That's just the way it is, okay? And I think a lot of the mental health systems that are in place and, and the, the therapists has been, how do we eradicate this? How do we stop you feeling anxious? How do we stop you feeling depressed? It, you can't. It's, 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 the, it's the wrong it's question. Happen. The right question is, how do we make you as an individual stronger in the face of such overwhelming anxiety and depression? That's the thing. How do we get you stronger? How do we make you more able to fight that fight? Um, and very few people speak in those terms. So what we do is we look for crutches. And they, I mean, one thing there is an epidemic of is prescription drug use. Yeah. Um, and depression use, which is mm. it's just, it's through the roof. Um, these things are all deeply, deeply concerning to me. I think, I mean, I've, I've been depressed. I've been suicidal. So I'm not talking up my ass. I understand those thoughts. I understand being in a dark place. I'm, I'm quite a dark person. You know, I've, a lot of that comes from my past and the way in which I interpret the world. So I understand perfectly what it's like to have those feelings. But I also understand that to give in to those feelings in any degree puts you in a darker place. And it makes your family and you and your society and your culture a much, much worse place. So all of that being said, so what's the answer then? Well, the answer, as far as I can see, and I can't see anything, I can't see any holes in this, is we're, we're lacking two things, as far as I can see. We're lacking personal responsibility, which is massively lacking in this culture. Um, massively lacking. It, no, nothing is ever your fault. Nothing mm. is ever your responsibility. Mm. Here's a pill to fix it. Here's a plaster to fix it. Um, you know, do some exercise. You know, or it's not your fault. It was you were abused or whatever it may be. All terrible things, but it doesn't take away from your responsibility to deal with the mm. situation that you're in. 
And the second thing is we have a huge lack of meaning, a massive, massive lack of meaning. That's the real crisis. It's not a suicide mm-hmm. crisis. The suicide crisis is just how a lack of meaning manifests itself. That's all it is. It's a symptom of the problem. We have absolutely no meaning. We don't teach people to look for meaning. We don't, we don't talk about meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, none of our structures are set up to discuss this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is, is we essentially send our, our young men and young women out. Um, but if we're talking about men, we send our young men out into a war that's being fought on a nuclear battlefield and we're arming them with pen knives. And then we have the audacity to come back, scratch our heads and wonder why so many of them are dying. Mm. It's just the, it's just the wrong message. We need to be able to teach meaning. And then that leads to a deeper question about, well, what is meaning? <clears throat> well, meaning is different things for different people. I get that. But meaning essentially is unless there is something in your life that is bigger than you are and your immediate needs, then you're in trouble. You will always be in trouble mm. and you will always struggle with lack of meaning. So yeah. that's, I mean, it's obviously, it's a very nuanced problem. Um, and there is no, there's no easy answer for it. But I mean, take, I'm not sure the, the guy's second name, but the, the Mike guy that, that killed himself in Love Island a few weeks ago. So that's obviously a really tragic thing. Like mm-hmm. one suicide is too many. So I'm not, I'm not belittling the problem. But within a day or two um, of that guy taking his own life, there was a health minister that had come out and demanded that the Villette TV programmes do more. Former contestants had come out and demanded that the producers do more and give more intervention. And it's, I don't know what they think that was going to yeah. achieve or how Love Island, the producers of that show, were somehow responsible for that man taking his own life. And I think that it feeds back into a culture, and this is an unpopular opinion, but I, I, I believe it to be objectively true, is that we've become, we've become far weaker. There's, I mean, that's just provably true as far as I can see. Mm. Emotionally, we've become far weaker. So we have these reality TV shows. I mean, let's put it into perspective. They, they weren't in Auschwitz. They go onto a TV show and they're there for a month in luxury and doing all these things. And they're there for their 15 minutes of fame because that's what this culture's told them that it is a good path mm. to go down. And they come back into the real world and they don't have the strength to deal with the fact that they don't have the money that they thought would come on the back of that or the following or the recognition. Um, and it delves them into a dark place. That's, so that. There's no crutch there. That's, that was the extent of the strength of, of, unfortunately, some of the people from this generation is that if the recognition and money aren't there, then darkness ensues. You know, and our structures have massively let down that generation. Um, and a lot of it has to be put at the, at the feet of just personal integrity and personal weakness. And that, I think there's underpinning in that, there's the society, um, what people strive for in society. I think it's, that's, those people that go on that show that what, I guess, what is, is their big goal or what underpins their meaning? Is, is that money or is that, that recognition? And they've obviously been in an environment which, which gives a nod to that, to that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? They, 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 they believe that. Um, but sets up quite a a risky thing to get into. And and that's why I say self-knowledge and, and to kind mm. of understand, like you say, your meaning or or your worth and, and, and what works for you. That's that you mentioned a couple of things there. And I think self-knowledge is a big thing because if they're just pinning all the hopes on on the money and, and these yeah. external factors and the meaning on everything that, on everything and um it's like that's all outside yourself. That's yeah. all outside your control yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, so it it sets up for a pretty a pretty a thin surface to work with, I think. Um, and that's why people need to understand to do something outside themselves to, to have a bigger purpose and to have that sort of drive towards making the the, the world a better place because that is all f- for you. That's all for yourself, really. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, just on, just off the back of that, um, it links into what you said about, I think a byproduct of progress, right, is that we've alleviated loads of things that would have caused suffering. You know, like there's, it's the first generation in, in the history of the world where uh, obesity is a problem with the poor and not famine. You know, it, we've created so many, we've taken away so many things which, which, you know, humans for years and years and years suffered. You know, all our grandparents mm. probably suffered in ways we'll never understand. Mm. Um, you know, poverty was rife, diseases which would kill you at 20 have been eradicated. And um, we've alleviated so much suffering in this country. And, you know, generations who went to war and toiled and fought or worked in labor camps. Yeah. And we're probably predispositioned to be able to cope with suffering. And I think almost if you take all that away, you, you take away all the capacity to deal with it. And it's mm. almost like your body probably needs some sort of suffering and you need to try and find other ways of, of getting that or putting yourself through that or um, building resilience because you've got mm. to build it up. Um, yeah. I know for me, most of my stuff was in the darkest places is when I got into meditation and, and just sitting in silence with my thoughts was the most terrifying thing I could do. But that's why I went and did it. Mm. Um, and things like that just... And it, that's something I think is also a big factor in, in today in why so many people struggle is because they put so much uh, weight onto their internal monologue, their mind. Mm. Their mind says, oh, you've only got a certain amount of likes on this Instagram, it means you're not popular. Or yeah. You believe it and then there's a corresponding physical feeling. Yeah. But if you can detach from that voice and just see it for what it is and see actually... No, maybe that's, that's a, a bit, yeah. view. Or maybe that's a bit louder today because I didn't sleep that well and I've had an argument yeah. with my girlfriend and that's why I'm putting more weight onto it. It, mm. there's so much self-knowledge and mm. there's so many things at play which I think like you said we're putting plasters on things by going back to producers and saying oh you guys need to do a better job yeah. of yeah, it's, it's, it's not deep enough that's not the just not real cause no, like, it's not and actually it's it's a real it's a sick perverse indictment on society when like you say for the first time in human history obesity is now a bigger health problem mm. than starvation and the fact that guys 18 to 35 are more likely to kill themselves than anything else is because society has done a remarkable job of eradicating everything else that would have killed us 100 years mm. ago. Mm. And so we've done all these incredible things and we've now implanted that with seeking out a life of comfort. And we're not built for comfort. We're built for struggle. Yeah. You don't find meaning. So there was, it was, um, I think it was Oscar Coward, um, Noel Coward rather, who had said that when we're happy, we're happy. Okay, so there's, when we're happy, we're happy. That's it. It's a great place to be, but there's, there's no real consequence to that. But when we're in pain, we grow. And we spend our entire lives, and our systems are set up to help us do this, avoiding pain, avoiding struggle, avoiding sacrifice, um, avoiding criticism, avoiding all the things that actually make the, the men and women we admire who they are. But we'll spend our entire time avoiding that. And then yeah. wonder why that, that depression creeps in yeah. at two in the morning. It's because we all want to be the heroes of our own story. All of us, we're built for that. You know, that's the oldest mythology of time. Um, and if, if we're not the heroes of our own story, then we end up sinning against our own ideals and we can't handle that. And that, I did that for my 20s. You know, that, that, that gnawing thought in the back of your head that you're not the man you should be yeah, yeah. is a haunting thought. Yeah. It's a haunting prospect. And you can only live with that for so long before one or two things happen. Either you step the fuck up and you take responsibility and you challenge life to a fight and you become the man you should be or you slip deeper and deeper into depression. Well, I'm in my 30s now and I remember my 20s were a similar kind of struggle of trying to find out who I really was. It sounds so cliche and wanky when you say it, but it is actually yeah. quite it's, true. It's a real thing. Um, Steve, you're probably a bit more ahead of the game, but, uh, mm. you know, mid-20s now. But um, one thing you've both kind of referenced is 
like, like you were saying, so many people now are mental health advocates and they'll just say it and they probably say it because of the kudos attached to it. Yeah. But I know of loads of examples of people and you can look them up. I mean, they're in the public, uh, in the public sphere now, but people who say these values and might do an Oscar speech and say all the right things, but they don't live by them. It will come out later that, you know, they've been uh, shagging anything that moves and they're mm. married with kids or, or whatever. You know, Tiger Woods gave years and years and years of videos about values and how he <laughs> linked to a family and his father. And, yeah. all, and it's all a lie. And it, if, you, if you don't live by them, you will get found out eventually. Like, it, it, not externally, but in your, in your own mind. Unless you you're a psychopath, yeah. which is what, 0.1% or whatever it is. Yeah. But unless you're a psychopath, you will, you have to be accountable yourself at some point. Yeah, and there'll be a reckoning at some point and... Yeah, what you feel internally will eventually manifest itself externally. Yeah. And that's essentially what suicide is. It's an yeah, external yeah. manifestation of an internal struggle. But I do, th- I do think we have, so going back to the truth thing, I do think we have a, we have a real issue with telling the truth mm. to people. And we have given being a victim um, real currency in this society. There's currency to being a victim. There's a real currency to that. You know, I've known people in my life, I know them now, men that are in their 50s, I know a particular guy who's been signed off work for 18, 19 years with depression. And... He, you can see it, and when you speak to him, his entire um, his entire identity is built up with him struggling with depression. That's who he is. Mm. He wouldn't know what to do if he woke up tomorrow and felt happy. Mm. And because he gets there, how are you doing? Are you okay? Are you good? And when you get that for twenty years, that gives you a comfort blanket that's incredibly enticing. You know, you don't want to leave that comfort blanket. But when you talk about having a victim mentality and you apply it to mental health, there is a pushback from from kind of the more liberal crowd. It's like, well, how dare you label people? Like, no, no. We've got to get real about this stuff if you're going to address it. By virtue of us being alive, we're all victims, all of us. We're all victims, we're all perpetrators, okay? So what do we do with that? Do we take that victim status that we all have inherently and we run with it and we make that a facet of our identity? Or do we say, I'm a victim by nature of being alive, but fuck me if I'm going to be, behave like a victim. I'm not going to do that. And they've got to get a point in the conversation, and I know this, this will sound brutal, but I, I, I see no alternative to it. So... You know, I worked with, I was a youth counselor for a long time. So I worked with some very disturbed kids. Mm. So I understand this problem very well. You get kids that have been abused or you might struggle with depression because you get injured or you get guys that come from a back with PTSD. Um, people, or, or a mother that loses a child in infancy. Real tragedies, genuine tragedies, no doubt about that. But how long can you cling to that tragedy before you make the decision to live again? How long do you cling to that before you try and make some use of it and move on? Now, I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know where the line is, and I guess it's different for everybody. But the point is, at some point, you have to say to people, and I said this to myself, okay, so I've applied my own logic to myself. You know, I had a, a difficult past, very difficult past, and I used that as an excuse for 15 years to be less than I should be. And I not only did it, I used it to manipulate, I used it to lie, I used it to, you know, I would be an asshole to past girlfriends, and then when they would call me out, I would say, oh, you don't understand this happened to me. Yeah, I was a coward with it. Mm. And I got to the point where I said, right, X, Y, Z happened to you, so what? So what? now what are we going to do? You're going to use this as an excuse for the rest of your life? No one's saying it wasn't tragic. No one's saying the things that we experience in human beings aren't tragic. They are. They're deeply tragic. But tragedy isn't exclusive to you. It wasn't exclusive to the gentleman that killed himself from love island. It wasn't exclusive to Robin Williams. You know, we all share in this tragedy. So what are you going to do with it? You can't eradicate it. And if you can't eradicate it, you find a way to overcome it and you find a way to be it. And there's real value in teaching people that. Um, and... Anything less than that, if we're going to be really honest about it, anything less than that is selfish. It's selfish. You taking your own life is selfish. Okay? You seeking to take the pain that you feel, remove yourself from that situation, and then leave everybody else in your life that loves you is selfish. 
And I wish there was a way, you know, again, I'm not a genius, I don't know how to do this, to have these conversations with people where we can do it gently and say, no, there, there's real purpose for you sticking around. And this is what it is. But if you leave here now, then you're going to leave this world being no only less than you can be. And if you're no only less than you can be, then the world is less than it could be. And the society is, and you actively add to the world being a darker place. Mm. No one's telling that to young people. Mm. You know, we're, 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 we're kind of, from what I can tell, you know, and I worked in mental health for 10 years, so I, I could see this firsthand. We are almost engaging in this kind of um, Munchausen syndrome with, with, with victimization for people. It's like, yes, you have a problem. That problem is real and we must deal with it. But the way to deal with it isn't a constant stream of compassion and empathy. Compassion mm. and empathy should be a starting point. Okay. But that's all it should be. Compassion and empathy become cancers if they're there too long. Mm. They become cancers. And you see that with, 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 you probably all went to school with a guy that was overmothered, mm. you know, and you can see it. So the mother's intentions were perfectly legitimate, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the mother's intentions are legitimate. Yeah, yeah. But, but she damages that child's long-term prospect to become a fully formed individual, to become a man, to go out into the world and stake his claim. Um, and we do that when we, we willingly, um, I'm trying to find the right way to articulate it. When, when, we, when we continue with compassion and empathy for too long, we become part of the problem. Mm. When, when was the line or the realisation for you um, for, for when you realised that you, you were doing it wrong or for when you realised you weren't being true to, to who you are? Right, so these so two things, right? So I've known it my entire life. Okay, I've, um, I had a very unusual background, unusual parents. Um, you know, my dad would literally met me and my brother memorize Martin Luther King speeches at seven and eight, you know, and, and decipher Bob Dylan lyrics. So we, we had an unusual childhood. So I've always been incredibly self-aware. So to my detriment, I've known that I wasn't the person I should be since I was 17 or 18. Mm. Um, so I've always known it and it's always haunted me. The moment when I decided that this really is enough now, um, there was two instances. One was the birth of my son, Kobe, which was seven years ago. And then three years after my son was born, my mum died. And my mum was my best friend. Um, and the strange thing about death is obviously we're all aware from being four or five. We all know we're going to die. All of us know it. Nobody fucking believes it. No one believes they're going to die and live like it. So my mum dying was my first brush with mortality. And I'm like, oh, right, I'm mortal. Mm. It's time to, I've got to do this now. Because I can't leave this earth with all this potential and these things I want to do and being less than. And the biggest thing was at my mum's funeral, my brother and I both gave a, gave a talk about it. And it was all completely unscripted. And I was up there for longer than I should have been. And um, afterwards, somebody had said, that was a really beautiful talk again. I said, oh, thank you very much. And I thought about it in the evening. I said, well, I didn't give that talk. Like my mum gave that talk, um, which sounds cliche, but it's, it's really deep. Mm. My mum left me no option but to say the words that I said. That's what I'm trying to say. She lived her life so well that I had no choice but to say what I said. And it got me thinking about my own children going, what are my kids going to say about me when I'm past or when I'm not here? And what happens if my passing comes in six months, not in 60 years? Then what are they going to say? If my passing comes six months from now, trust me, I've failed. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that really gave me the kick up the ass. They say, no, you, you've, you've got to start living now, motherfucker. You, you can't be planning and gesturing to the future all the time, you know, in a constant state of I'm progressing. It's, it's got to be now. You've got to push the button. So that's, that's, that was the, the biggest turning point for me was then. That was my first push with mortality. I think that's really beautifully put. Um, yeah. Just to push back on one certain thing you mentioned earlier and just, um, you know, I've known people who aren't here anymore who have lost their lives to, to suicide and 
the the selfish word can be quite a loaded one sometimes. And yeah, it can. If we take uh, the way you articulated it, which I think is is brilliant, but sh- is there a state of affairs you could envisage where someone perhaps has, you know, come back from war or seen so much stuff that the struggling they're going through is almost beyond what we can be capable of? Or I'm sure there are instances where people's demons or yeah. You know, there's some things people have seen or maybe done and had the guilt for where they just can't get over. Um, mm. And I'm not ever saying advocate. I think there is always a way out. But I think the selfish word sometimes can be, you know, it's it, can be quite, it can be it's brutal. brutal. Yeah. And I know it's brutal. And I know you're being honest. I know you're not saying no, it, it is to be brutal. brutal. And I know when I say it, it's brutal. So I, I, I'm aware of that. You know, yeah. I've, I've known people that have taken their own lives, um, you know, and I, I had a suicide attempt like 15 years ago. So I... I, I feel like I'm almost qualified to say because I'm not sat here in this ivory tower judging other people's pain. Yeah, yeah. Just man up. You know, it's not about that. But I think um, but there are some people that experience things that are so malevolent that there is just no way back. I get yeah. that. It happens. Okay, I get that. Yeah, and we're talking super rare cases. Yeah, that, it happens. Sometimes like, people experience such horrendous things there is just no way back. Okay, yeah, I've yeah. seen that. I get it. I understand it. When I'm talking about they say the, the generalisation of most suicide cases. And that's not saying you should commit suicide. No, of course not. Perhaps there's lifelong things you're going to have to yes. deal with and cope with. Things that or, will change you. But yeah. to answer your question, um, and it's a brutal answer, no. No. Okay. I, don't, I don't think that there is ever a time. I've been in some very dark places and I've been around people that have been in very dark places. Very, very dark places. So I, I understand perfectly that urge to go... I want out of this and I want out of this now. Mm. That urge to run is very, very, very real. So I understand it. I understand it perfectly well. And I've resisted that urge myself many times. There is never a time, generally speaking, I'm not talking about the exceptional cases, generally speaking, there is never a time when you are 100% without choice. Mm. Never. Yeah. And ultimately, that choice you make to, to end your own life, especially if you have a family, whatever else, I don't know any other way to describe it other than selfish. Now, to add a caveat to that, that doesn't mean I am full of compassion and empathy. Mm. You know, I work with these guys. I've worked with these guys for 10 years. Um, I don't want there to be any more suicide victims, not at all. But I genuinely believe that we are letting people down by not having a brutally honest conversation. Um, and I think the way in which you love people the best is by being brutally honest with them. Don't mess around with people's lives and mental health by giving them pointless platitudes. Now, I get sick to death of seeing these um, memes on Instagram about, you are enough. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. Mm. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're a dick. I was a dick for 15 years. You're not enough as you are, because if you were enough as you currently are, you wouldn't be in the mess you're in. But the beauty of that is if you can teach people to go, you're not who you should be, right? And you're responsible for that. But that's a beautiful fucking thing, because if you got yourself here, we can get yourself out. That's, and that's an exciting message. Mm. You know, I know when I was in my darkest place, the last thing I want was people saying, there, there, it's all right. You're a good man. I wasn't a good man. Don't bullshit me because it's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. I think we spend a lot of time bullshitting people. And I honestly believe there's no higher manifestation at all um, of love than to be brutally honest. You need to brutalize people with the truth. The, the truth is redemptive. It's probably the most redemptive force on the face of the earth. And that's, that's what therapy is. You go to a therapy session, truthful conversations redeem people. I don't think we're being honest enough with the people that are still. Oh, I totally agree with you on that. And, you know, there's a Sam Harris essay on the truth, which um, it changed my life. After that, I vowed never to lie again. I've, I've read that, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's and an amazing guy. It, it kind of, yeah, it breaks down. Every, and people are like, what about if your your wife says my bum? And I was like, it's in the essay. It covers kind of every yeah. single version of it you can imagine. Every thought experiment, every kind of scenario is kind of covered in that. And uh, it, that, that was one of the moments when I thought, no, I'm never going to create I'm never going to create a false reality between me and someone else again because mm. 
there's no benefit to that. Even yeah. if you think you're doing it out of kindness, you're not really no. in the long run. Um, the one thing I, that does kind of flag up in my head, because I've taught a, taught a player about male suicide and often a lot of the research suggests that some of the people who go through with it, obviously we can't ever interview them, but yeah. um, often feel like that they're a burden on everyone and they do yeah. it almost, not selflessly, but they don't think of it, they're not in that mindset of selfish. But I guess you're kind of pulling back and saying that even that in itself is like a objective selfish act. Well, yeah, if, if well, yeah, it is. That, I think their thinking must get warped. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I want to just jump in here because um, I think we're having a, the conversation that that is really, really helpful. Yeah, it's yeah. honest and, and you've just mentioned honesty, but you also mentioned the capacity um, to be able to understand this, understand yourself. Um, and and I think one of the, the universal messages that we're getting across here is to build that capacity. You know, hopefully mm. people can understand this message in a way that they know that they can build a resilience. They can understand what meditation is. They can understand what society's views and what other people's beliefs are compared to theirs. Um, and what's, what's, um, what's evidential, what's, what's actually got logic behind it and kind of suss themselves out so they can create that capacity and that ability to be able to not get to that place where the thinking might be warped or they don't understand what's going on and they can't yeah, they kind of, you know, put things together. Because um, I think that like, the warped is a good way, because I think a lot of them will probably think that they are a burden on their family and their family mm. would be better off without them. So in a sense, they don't see it as selfish. Because they've but not had I that. I guess you're saying that the choice of doing it is in itself still a... He's, he's still selfish. Yeah, yeah. I know that sounds brutal. I, I, I don't see any way out of that. But again, just to reiterate, so you know, I'll get all the blowback from this. I have absolute compassion and empathy. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want this to happen to, to anybody. But equally, so if you, if you pull back on this, if you think you're a burden to your family, you probably are. Mm. Because you being weak and less than you should be is a burden to your family. Me being weak is a burden to my missus. It's a burden to my children. It's a burden to my business. It's a burden to my community. Okay. If I had had somebody at that time and I didn't, but if I'd had somebody that had explained that to me, yeah, because mm. you know what, you, you, you trust your own intuition. If you feel like a burden, you probably are. If you feel weak, you probably are. If you feel sad, you probably are. But again, it almost feels too honest, doesn't it? To discuss yeah, yeah. it, like it feels too honest. But the, what people forget, the, the, the message behind that is that he's saying, if you're feeling this way, how have we got here? Let's reverse engineer it. You didn't just arrive at this place. Let's reverse engineer it. How much of this are you responsible for? The answer is at least 80%, because that's the same answer for everybody. If you're responsible for 80% of it, we can fix 80% of it. That's, that's got to be the message. Um, and I'm, again, I'm not talking about the things that, there are things that happen to all of us that we can't do anything about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we do get to choose our responses. And I mean, the, the, I read the statistics this morning, actually. So the, the two biggest reasons listed in suicide notes for suicide were um, financial difficulties and divorce. Yeah, relationship breakup is, is <clears throat> yeah, yeah, the other. Both yeah. of those issues are largely defeated by the implementation of meaning. Yeah. If you are killing yourself because of financial difficulties, and I've been there, I get, I get it, completely understand it, I'm, I understand it, then the meaning in your life was off somewhere. You see what I mean? Yeah, the meaning yeah. was off. If money was enough to make you not want to be here, which is understandable, something went wrong with how you, how you view the world. If you wanted to kill yourself because your, your marriage broke down, you know, and I've had a marriage break down, it's the most difficult thing I've ever been through in my life. It's horrendously traumatic. But again, if that happened, something went off with, with your meaning. You know, your value structure wasn't set up the way that it should have been, which is fine. 
But the, my point is, how do we get into these young guys, maybe at a school level, 14, 15, 16, and try to implant this idea of meaning? Discover what your meaning is, discover it early on, and teach them that life's going to come for you. It doesn't matter whether you're gay, straight, you know, black, white, rich, poor, life will come for you, and life will fucking destroy you at some point. All of us. Life will bring you to your knees mm. at some point. None of us are protected from that, okay? It's our birthright of, of just of being. And we don't have that conversation. So when these dark times come, these kids are like, I, I didn't think this could ever happen to me. And it's like, look, this is going to be difficult. Here's what we do to build you up as a human being yeah, before yeah. it gets difficult. And you know that from, from playing rugby. Like I boxed for 20 years. So, and I used to get so nervous I could barely fight. Like my biggest thing, I couldn't control my nerves at all. Just couldn't do it. Um, and I would literally be just shaking in the ring and I would I'd be praying that my opponent didn't look at me. Um, and I prepped my mind for that. I, like, I know it's coming, I know it's coming, I know it's coming. And I prepped it, you know, and after a few years that those nerves vanished. Mm. And I think we need to get the same message in, especially to these young kids that say, life's brutal, it's difficult, it's going to be hard. And here's a roadmap for how we deal with that when it comes so it's not so much of a shock. And I think if we did that more, you would see a decrease in these suicide rates. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to get both your thoughts on um, how that might look. Uh, I mean, for me, I think, and again, it's another term which is being completely commercialized and, and a bit ruined and, you know, mindfulness, it's book mindfulness now, it's, it's kind of like packaged up. But mm. I think those sort of tools that you can teach in school about, yeah, suffering happens, pleasure happens, you, you shouldn't mm. crave one and try and mm. push the other away. These things happen, it's always how you respond to it, which matters. It's always internal. Yeah. Um, I think I, I would love to see like mindfulness or meditation in, in, introduced in schools across the country as... Yeah. Um, and you know it's not for everyone but I think it can teach you certain things it's just super useful and which definitely line can. up with a lot of the things you said yeah. there but are there any other things which sort of jump out at you what in terms of fixing the structures yeah or of schools or that you'd introduce or we, we have um, we need to introduce some form of emotional intelligence teaching yeah which is lacking it's lacking when mm. I was at school um, we, we, the academic seems to be nil but we don't live in a, our lives aren't academic our lives are emotional by definition. We don't have emotional intelligence. We don't teach emotional intelligence. You don't get prepared for anything, no. do you? And this yeah. kind of emotional intelligence, which comes from Instagram and social media, which prevents such a, a disturbing message. Um, you know, I think what you guys are doing with the retreats, I saw, that's yeah. another great thing. And that was, you know... A great, a great thing to do for guys. It breaks down a lot of barriers in there. We did a lot of things yeah. that I think people felt uncomfortable with, but... Mm. But I think, yeah. I think as well, the main thing is we, we talk so often, don't we? We talk constantly about happiness. What makes you happy? What do we need to be happy? I just want to be happy. No one ever stops to, to put a definition to that. And again, it's the wrong message. Happiness is fleeting. We all know that. It's fleeting. So why are we spending all of our time trying to chase an emotion that we know is fleeting? Happiness will come and go. Sometimes you're happy. Most of the time you're sad. If you're happy, great. Enjoy yeah, it. Yeah. But it's not a permanent state of being. What we should be doing is teaching people to know what you want is purpose. You yeah. want purpose, you want responsibility, you want meaning. Because when the tough times come, and they will come, those three things will keep you going. Those three things will keep you going. You know, when you got injured, you were happy, mm. but what kept you going? You wanted to play again, that yeah, determination. Sure. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So trying to teach us, what do you want to be happy? It's, it's just, it's the one yeah, question. Because it's it not changes deep and it's fleeting happiness, yeah. but by its very nature. Mm. So mm. to crave after something like that, you're never going to, you're never going to get happiness forever unless you're on an MDMA state induced for life or something. <laughs> yeah. That's think, not a state of happiness either. I think it, basically right? all of it can be summed down, well, no, not summed down, but I think generally speaking, the way in which we approach this problem and the way in which society approaches most problems, it's too visible. It's too surface. It's not deep enough. We're trying to um, attack a really complex problem. Mm. Um, and 
we need to go deeper than the surface. The answer isn't to do more exercise or to surround yourself with friends. They're all great. They're all great things. They're great first steps. It does not deal with the real problem, which is a crisis of meaning. And until you address that, these issues will just continue ad infinitum. Mm, I'm going to need to jump out now. We fucking, we're in there now, are we? And I'm going to have to jump out straight away and go get me, do my physio. Um, I think you might want to crack, yeah, crack I'll on. Yeah, I'll crack on for a little bit if you've yeah, still got yeah. some time. Well, and... Yeah, good to meet you. Yeah, you too, Steve. We'll, we'll, we'll do another one. Yeah, definitely. See you yeah. Steve. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there was another topic which you mentioned in one of your podcasts. I might wait till you close the door, actually. <laughs> um, there's another topic you mentioned in one of the podcasts which just completely resonated with me so much. And it's something, you know, you can't judge your own personal experience and then extrapolate that to life in general, you no. know, but I've done a bit of research in here and done some reading now and the art of conversation and particularly the art of listening is something I think, which is definitely on the decline. And then yeah. I looked into it and there's a number of studies that said people are reading less and reading is a way of actually taking in and processing large amounts of information, which you, you sometimes do need to do in a conversation yeah. because you've got to listen to it and come off the back of it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is social media. You can put out short messages and you don't have to see what comes back. You can just put something out and walk off. Yeah. And I've had a lot of conversations. I don't want to generalize younger people, but in my experience, it's sometimes even younger people. But then it's actually been, you know, people on, I know who've used Facebook the most are in their 40s and 50s. Mm, yeah. Um, and I see it in them as well where they haven't listened to what I've said and they're just kind of chucked out their own monologue after. And I kind of think, this isn't a conversation. No. And I think this is something which... I've noticed it more and more. And then I heard you say on, on a couple of podcasts that the art of conversation is, is, is dying. And um, yeah, I hadn't heard someone else say it yet. I was just been doing a little bit of research. I wanted to write something on it, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, it, very, well, it very much is. I mean, I, I employ a lot of young people. Um, so we have what, 31, 32, and they're, they're all generally speaking under the age of top 25. <clears throat> so, and what you, what you find is that most people will engage you in conversation, but their engagement level is only to a point where they will listen to you just enough to respond. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. um, and if they hear a certain key word, you go, oh, you might mention Spain. They go, I went into Spain once, unbelievable, you know, and they've gone off the back of it. Yeah, there's, there's no listening to understand or to comprehend. And most of it, most, but most people's listening, it's not active listening, it's defensive listening. Active listening is the key. <clears> yeah. that, that's the skill which has died the most, I think. Yeah, but what we do, we, a lot of people engage in defensive listening. So so I'd be listening to you now and yeah, yeah. I'm just waiting for that trigger point when I can rebut you yeah, yeah. rather than trying to listen to what you say. And I get that a lot because I get, you know, when, when someone comes on, you know, especially someone with a face full of says suicide is selfish, it, it provides a trigger point. Yeah, and yeah. I get that. Um, and then, I, you know, it's, a lot of times people will ever give me the chance to um, allow me to articulate that further. Yeah, yeah. Um, it will just draw the conversation to a close. But without that art of conversation, we just end up in these horrendous, you know, these, these camps, these ideological camps where you're just a piece of shit and that's a piece of shit and there can be no common ground whatsoever. And the reality is we all want the same outcomes. Generally speaking, more or less we want the same outcomes. But yeah, unless we engage in that, it's not going to happen. And Instagram's huge for that. And I fell into that trap because you're scrolling through and Instagram's taught us to have um, an attention span that doesn't need to last longer than 30 seconds. Mm. That's on the video there. 30 seconds are done, 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 done. So you put on a podcast that's two hours long. And that blows most people's minds. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it did me when I first started listening to Peterson and his podcast was working about two and a half, three hours long. They were epic sessions. Um, it took me maybe four or five sessions to listen to an entire thing. Well, now I'll get so lost in one that I'll do the entire thing start outside the house in, in the car. I won't want to go inside. Um, you got to retrain your mind to do it. Yeah, and it is training your mind, you know, neural networks can kind of yeah. reform. And, and that's why I think podcasts are a really 
Oh, the backlash of that, like you said, because yeah. it is long form, long form conversations yeah. rather than a tweet argument. You know, with, yeah, like, you can't, you can't argue anything. You can't actually get into stuff. And even on, you know, shows like News Night and stuff, someone might get a ten minute segment, and there's one expert, one expert, and then someone hosting it. Yeah, and you can't get into anything on it. No, so that's why in podcasts and conversations, you can really get into the meat of it. And I think that's why people are getting so much value of it now because yeah. it's been lost a bit. I think when, as well because it, when you get such a, when you get a tweet which are under the forty characters or ten minutes on a news night segment, these things are they almost pushing no matter how well articulated your argument, no matter how you know intelligent you are, no matter how much you know what you're talking about, it almost pushes you into a place where you have to make logical fallacies at some point mm. just to be able to get your point across. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that the argument's only been half had, um, which is why this kind of format is is, is great. It's great yeah. for that stuff. And then someone could then misrepresent you or take a certain section out of context, and you're like, yeah. well. I said it like this, but if you want me to go into it, it would take an hour. Oh, yeah. yeah, I, mean, yeah. I just recently um, did like a, a mini documentary series for The Guardian um, for one of their online segments. And we were speaking about masculinity and what it means to talk to masculinity, male suicide, et cetera. And it had dawned on me afterwards that, you know, I'd said some things that not everybody would agree with. And I thought, if they edit this a certain way, do you know I mean? They could just make me look like a complete scumbag. Mm. They really could. If they just decided to, 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 to start there and finish there and miss out the context and the pretext and the vortex to what I was saying, it could be really damaging. And obviously media does that an awful lot. It does that an awful lot. Which yeah. is why stuff like this is really important when you can just see it's unedited from start to finish. This is what was said. Nothing's taken you know, out of context. Um, it's a great way of getting the message across. Well, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Sam Harris. He's kind of my intellectual hero and I'm less um, familiar with Jordan Peterson. I've only listened to a few of his podcasts and um, but a lot of my friends have got really into him now and he, he was kind of their gateway into a, a lot of this thinking. And um, yeah, it was for me. For me, because I haven't read his book yet, but a couple of his podcasts, I've, I found he was, he often went down to uh, religion and archetypes a bit too much for me, mm. but um, perhaps I need to delve in a bit more to it. Um, See, I get that. Any Anytime you talk about religion, you, you lose half your audience, which yeah, is a yeah. shame because whether you're religious or not, I mean, I was religious for a long time, I'm not religious now in any way, but religious or not, um, you know, the Bible's a remarkable book. The Quran is a remarkable book for reasons that are not religious. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot of the history of of human nature is contained in those texts. So it would be remiss of anybody to dismiss them purely because they don't believe there's a, a guy with a white beard in the sky. I don't buy into that either. Um, but what's written there, it, it gives it gives a history of us. Um, yeah. And they're fascinating. And the way Peterson does um, some lectures on the Old Testament, and he breaks it down and he mixes it in with Nietzsche and Jung. And it's, it's fascinating. Really, really fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I, off the back of this, I, I will go and listen to it. I know he's got a series on YouTube of um, breaking down, but I was raised Catholic as well. So kind of like immediately when, yeah, I was raised more. when you're in the Bible and things get flagged to look at truth, it kind of like puts me off a little bit. Um, so, because I'm not familiar with this, my understanding was, and this could be wrong completely. Again, it's good to be wrong. I mm. think a lot of people are scared to be wrong. Like if someone's proven right, me wrong in an argument, yeah. I'm, I'll be happy. Yeah, you yeah. know, philosophy taught me that. It's like, the arguments aren't there to be won. It's why I don't get to pub debates and things like that because no one's going to change their mind. Same on social media. No. It, it's been proven actually that on social media, you take away all the kind of um, physical sides of conversation and people actually, even when shown a fact which just proves their theory, they double down. Um, yeah. There's like... And, so there's no point in even engaging, I no. think. Well, people um, will kill for that. Exactly. Well, they will kill to protect those beliefs. I mean, that's when I first discovered Peterson, because um, obviously I mean, he'd be described as what, like a, a, a right-leaning centrist. He was the the counterpoint, the opposite counterpoint for everything that I thought I believed in. So I listened to Peterson and dismissed a lot of what he said. Mm. But I found enough of what he said intriguing to go back into it. And the more I went back into it, the more I had to do away with my presuppositions before. Um, you know, so I abandoned religion, abandoned a lot of my liberal views and my economic views. 
Um, and not based on someone else's opinion being stronger than mine, but just I Peterson encouraged me really to look for truth, objective truths, things that are universally that can't be argued with, and then use that as a base for everything else. Um, and that's what I did. And that's why I changed my opinions. And it's, I mean, changing opinions is difficult because that's literally who you are. Yeah. You are what you think or feel. So for you to get 15 years, 20 years down the road, as I did from a religious perspective and go, everything I've staked my life on for the last 25 years, I now no longer believe to be true. Well, I remember doing the philosophy <clears throat> religion. You know, I used to go to mass up until about 18 and, you know, just believed in the, the big guy mm. in the sky and everything they taught me. And then when I started reading into it, it was just like a huge, like, oh shit, that's all built on. I, I, I'd struggled for about six months because I kind of knew deep down I didn't believe in the Catholic texts anymore. Yeah. But I didn't want to accept it. Mm. And then eventually it just kind of, I couldn't live with that lie anymore. Yeah. And, and yeah, it was the same for me, but it's, 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 um, it throws you into chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, my religion was who I was. You know, every decision I made was based on that religion. My decision of, of who I went on a date with, of what job I took, of what media I consumed, what films I would see. I wouldn't see 18 films. Um, wouldn't drink alcohol. Everything about who I was in, as an individual outwardly was dictated to by my faith. So when I came to the conclusion that this faith isn't true, I was like, right, I'm not sure the fuck I am anymore. Mm. And it, you've got to, it throws you into this awful, this awful place. Um, which is why a lot of people struggle when they leave mainstream religion. Yeah, and mm. undoubtedly it still informs who you become. Mm. You can't, but you can take the good stuff that kind of... Yes, yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm glad I was raised Mormon. Mm. I mean, it gave me, whether you're religious or not, there's a lot of the, the moral and the ethical stuff. It predate, I mean, a lot of the, the Christian um, ethics, it, they predate Christianity. Yeah, it's, it's a Neoplatonic religion. It gets yeah. a lot of it from, so that's, that, that was one of my questions about Peterson. Is, does he go to the text to look for the truth or does he, the truth's objective and he goes to the text that they're showing what the truth is and they're kind of, it, no, know. he goes deeper than that. He, he goes, he, he goes to the, the what predates Christianity and predates. Christianity. Okay, yeah. So what? So his thing is all about um, the archetypes and mythologies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how they have they have with the, every generation of mankind, every every civilization of mankind, the same archetypes have existed throughout millennia. Um, and you can find that in the prehistoric text. You find that in the hieroglyphics in the caves. You find that in Mesopotamia. You find that in in um, in the religious text. You find it in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and that's fascinating for me. What's mm. fascinating for me for that, whether you look, the, the problem with mainstream religion is it's giving you two choices. You either believe in the Bible, literally, there's a man in a cloud, the flood's real, Adam and Eve's real, literally, okay? Or you become an atheist. And that's the great sin of religion because the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Science doesn't know shit about how we started, okay? And that's fine. Religion presents something that's, that's too unattainable for most people to believe in. So we stop searching for the truth. What we find too unattainable to believe in, we just, generally speaking, we dismiss it because our, our brains can't mm. complex, um, compute something that's as complex as that. Um, but the truth is somewhere in the middle. And for me, I find it fascinating that every single um, society that's ever existed has had some form of worship, whether it was a sun, a temple, and um, you know, all the different types of deities. There has always been a faith system in every civilization known to man. Mankind has never, ever, ever been enough for himself. And I find that fascinating. For me, for us to just dismiss that as superstition mm. is naive. And yeah, you mentioned a good point as well, is that our, our minds just, our minds aren't set up to sometimes understand understand what the truth of the world is in no. some ways. Like I hate it when people mention quantum theory because it's usually this, the like signal of someone who's a bit of a quack. But yeah. <laughs> quantum theory kind of, if you look into it, 
even on its surface level, it kind of postulates things which just don't make sense. Mm. And they don't have to make sense to us mm. because our minds aren't designed to kind of understand that. No. Um, so there are truths out there that science can access and show, but that we just can't understand and we'll never understand. No, it's really paradoxical. I mean, yeah. the, the universe is paradoxical. Existence is paradoxical. Um, you know, everything we do is, is paradoxical. And yeah. that's that we can't get our minds around that either. I know. I, I always find that whenever people are too logical and rational about everything, you can kind of, I think it was Kant who said, uh, the universe either existed forever or had a beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Neither of those make logical sense to us. No. But one of those has to be true. Yeah. In some sense. So you can't fall back on logic for everything. No. Like it, it just, it no, can, not, nothing we do is logical. Yeah. The fact that we're here, the fact that existence exists is, is not logical. Yeah. It, the fact that we're here, that we put, none of this is logical. None of it. And the, which again is a reason why I think the right message for individuals, and obviously we all struggle with this existential angst to some degree, is take as much personal responsibility as you possibly can. Um, do as much good as you possibly can to as many people as you possibly can. Be the best version of you that you possibly can. And every time you genuinely engage in that set of principles, you move the world one step closer to being a better place. Mm. All else, however interesting it is to discuss and debate, all else falls by the wayside. It pales into insignificance compared to that. Um, you know, the, 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 the strengthened individual is the answer to all of the problems of humanity. And That's quite a spiritual message. I know spiritual mm. is a loaded term, but I think Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, kind of helps to reclaim it a little bit. But yeah. I would say that's quite a spiritual message and, and in a positive way, I'd say. Yeah, well, I think, well, I mean, you're right, that, that word's been, been tainted by, you know, these kind of yeah. new age idiots. But it's true. I mean, we are, we are in some sense spiritual beings. There's, there's no getting around that, you mm. know. There's no getting around it. We don't know where thoughts come from. We don't know where consciousness comes from. We don't know where any of these things come from. And we don't, we don't know, know how we're able to think and talk to ourselves independently yeah, yeah. of me muttering the words to you. And the, there is so much about us that we don't understand. We're so complex that to throw all that at the feet of science, again, would just be staggeringly naive of us. That was one of the big head fucks for me when I first got into meditation was that you kind of, it makes sense when you start to think about it, but you just realise that you don't author your thoughts. And yeah. they just kind of come up randomly a lot mm -hmm. of the time, you know, and just a random thought, or you could just be walking around and then some kid you went into primary school with can just come into your head and you're thinking, where the fuck has that come from? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. literally haven't chosen it. It's just out of the ether, yeah. it kind of rises up. Um, so that's why I think that you should never put too much weight on what your internal mind is, because sometimes mm. it can just be random. Like, oh, it can be incredibly random. That's why I've, I've never been a big believer in these guys to try and interpret dreams yeah, as yeah. if there's some sort of hidden message there. Like, no, I've dreamed about playing with midgets on a surfboard. It, <laughs> it means nothing. I'm not going to try and interpret that. Yeah, yeah. It, it means nothing. But I mean, the, 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 the counter message to that is, no, we, we don't necessarily control where these thoughts come from, but we do need to, need to master where those thoughts go. Yeah, definitely. How big yeah, those thoughts yeah. become and how we process those thoughts. Um, because, well, that's literally where anxiety and suicide and depression comes from. It comes from the inability, generally speaking, to control and rationalise those thoughts that come into our mind. Definitely, yeah. So the way I always like to think of it, and it's, it's quoted somewhere, was that for a while um, I worked for my mind. It would drag me around with thoughts yeah. a certain day or make me feel a certain way. Now, because I'm a writer, you know, I need my mind. I need to think. Now I try and uh, master my mind. So yeah. I try and flip it the other way around. Um, but yeah, it's not easy. There's still days, I'm sure everyone will admit, where you realise you have been dragged by a certain thought or a feeling and you've been a bit of an arsehole for that day. And, oh, without a doubt. Um, it's always, it's never like, you know, I'm not enlightened. No, no, hardly anyone is, if anyone. No, all you try and do is be more enlightened than you, than you were yesterday. Yeah, yeah. We, we never become enlightened. We never we never get to this this perfect state of being. 
the only thing we can try and do is be better than we were before. And like I said, I think I said in the, in the other podcast I did, you try and play it as like a numbers game. Yeah, you, you know? did, yeah, yeah. So it's like, well, you get to a point, hopefully, um, which is, I think is as close to enlightenment we're going to get, where let's just say that you manage to be um, a coherent, good, just moral version of you, the best version of you that you can muster, and you end up manifesting that cell, that into the world 95% of the time. Good, that's as close as you're going to get. Because you're human. 5% of the time, you're going to be a dick. You're going to yeah. be an arsehole. You're going to be angry. You're going to say the wrong thing to your missus. You might shout at your kids. Fine. But if 95% of the time, you've managed to harness the best of you, and that's what you manifest into the world, that's what we need. We need men that are going to do that. That's exactly what we need. That's why I can't stand the argument, it's just the way I am. It's just the way I am. I can't control my depression. You know, I've, I've got bipolar. I've got this. I can't do it. I say, no. No. The no. way you are isn't fixed. No, it's not fixed. And it's like, at what level is that acceptable? Mm. Because if I said, you know what, I'm just, I'm like my, my default saying, I'm, I, I, could, I experience a lot of anger. Yeah. No one ever sees it, never display it because I've, I've mastered it. I'm quite an angry person. I'm quite a dark person. I'm prone to depression. I'm prone to being very insular. None of those things serve me well. They don't serve the people around me well. None of it serves me. So I've made those things my master now rather than the way around. But would it be acceptable for me to say, look, to my missus, I'm maybe once a year, twice a year, I'll probably give you a slap. It's just who I am. I can't control it. It wouldn't be acceptable. But you would do a watered down version of that. Mm. It's like, no, I get it. It's just the way you are. It's like, no, we've got to change this message. This idea that you are burdened with who you are. It's like, well, in some sense, that's true. You are burdened with who you are, but you get to control the output of this, this thing that you are. You get to control that. People change all the time. Yeah, I think it's Stephen Fry talks quite... Um, eloquently about his uh, bipolar um, and how he uses it as a strength and how he yeah. knows there's certain bits where he's more creative and he says I wouldn't even take away the downs because I can create some good art in those and he kind of if there are chemical fluctuations I'm not an expert on bipolar but he responds to those in, in mm -hmm. the best way he can and yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. It's not just about the van, but that's a different, we'll get into that another time. But no, he's right. I mean, what you do is you accept there are some, like I accept that I'm quite, I'm an insular person. I don't like being around lots of people. I'm a thinker. I like being by myself. I accept that. I don't try and change that. But what I do is say, right, because I'm that way inclined, if I go with this and take this to its logical conclusion, I will isolate everybody in my life mm. that I love. And I'll become that guy I don't want to spend time with. You live on a mountain on your yeah, own or something. Like, that's yeah. not good. I've got responsibility, so that's not good. Um, but equally, if I try too hard to be extroverted and get myself out there, that's going to damage who I am. So that's not good. So I accept what I am, but I make sure that I keep it balanced. I don't let it go to its logical conclusion because that's damaging for me and my family and my community, and my business, et cetera. And I don't try and change it too much because that changes the nature of me. What I do do is make sure that I'm in control of that the entire time. That's a really nice way of putting it. And that's, yeah, there, there's certain, it took me a while to realize that I grew up an only child. I've got half brothers and sisters now, but I was quite introverted. And I guess it's quite a cliche of a writer, but I kind of always tried to put on extroversion quite a lot. And, mm. I, and I realized I used to get fucking so tired and so like, it just, if I was doing social things, it might be small, but like six, seven days a week, it would fucking really ruin yeah, it. And yeah. now I was like, actually, I don't, I need to have two or three days where I'm just, you know, a, a couple of nights in where I'm just doing my own thing. Yes, might yeah, be me and my that. girlfriend, I'm just cooking yeah. and just chilling or, but I actually need that to be my best self. Oh, I, I absolutely, like I need, so like throughout my twenties, my teens, my twenties, my thirties, I was, um, I, I would describe myself as an extrovert. Yeah, and, yeah. And, it's not until recently I realized I wasn't, I'm just really good at playing that role. Yeah, yeah. I can go out, I can do the party thing, I can do all of that, I can have the friends around, I can play that role really well. 
but it's actually not where I'm most comfortable. I need time, comp- even away from my kids, I need time by myself yeah, just yeah. in order to get my head right and to function. Um, but again, that's a really important way, sorry, not important, it's an important thing for people to realise. I think so many people play a role um, and you've got to find a way to be true to yourself and not all of these things are bad qualities and even the bad qualities you can have, as long as you can control them, you can turn it into something that's productive. You don't necessarily need to eradicate these parts of you. When Jung talked about that, mm-hmm. that's, that's the integration of the shadow. That's taking elements of you that you can that you recognize are potentially harmful and dark um, and integrating that into you to make it good. It's what a fighter does, what a rugby player does. I was does. just thinking of MMA it's what, it's what aggression is, yeah. like channeling that into you something. You don't eradicate aggression, yeah, yeah. but you integrate, you make it work for you. Yeah. Kamara Usman did a great podcast on Joe Rogan recently, the current welterweight champion MMA, about a lot of how he's channeled all that and now he's the world champion and they can give his daughter and family life they never have and He's made a positive out of it. Because, yeah, because, because that's, yeah, yeah. And, and it is a positive. Aggression is a positive. I mean, like, not all aggression manifests itself physically, you know, um, and, and not all, um, I was going to say, Martin Luther King. So he's one of, he's one of my sort of intellectual and moral heroes. Um, and people say that he was, he was anti-violence, um, which obviously he was, but he wasn't anti-fighting. He, he fought hard. Mm. He sacrificed a lot. It's just that his, his aggression wasn't manifest itself in a physical way. He was still angry. He was still aggressive. He integrated those things into himself. And without those, look, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. If you're not angry, you can't get anything done. You just can't. Mm-hmm. You have to have a, a base level of anger and aggression in order to push yourself forward through the world. And if you don't, you don't get anywhere. You have to have that. You have to. Um, and I think now we, we're looking at those traits as being you know, toxically masculine which is just, I mean, it's another story, but that's just nonsense. But yeah, you have to have a base level of those things. You get to decide how that manifests itself. But those things, generally speaking, they're good. They push us forward. They motivate us, you know, so. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, yeah, the thing is, is when anger becomes irrational and you're only affecting yourself is when it's bad. If you channel it into something good, then it's good. Yeah, I mean, I get angry at myself. I get get angry when I do stuff wrong. I get angry when the business isn't doing what it should. I get angry at my own inertia, Mm. you know. I've got to constantly push myself forward. But if I didn't feel that anger towards myself, um, nothing would happen. If Martin Luther King didn't feel anger towards those injustices, we could be still facing the same injustices. So these things are good. They're inherently good. It's just that there is a, there's a tipping point for everything. There's no such thing you know, as an entire character trait being bad and we should eradicate it. It's no, there's a tipping point. Let's find the right tipping point for you. Um, and that's, that's what I try to do in my life. I try to get the worst of me and integrate it rather than eradicate it. And actually those, those parts of me that potentially have the power to destroy me and everything I've built, if I get it, find a way to make those things work for me, I'm 10 times more effective. And that's what I've done the last four or five years. Cool. Um, well, mate, it's been great to have you on. Um, been a really, really good chat. And I think we'll definitely get you on again at some cool. point. Thank um, you. Yeah, it's been good. It's if been I was pleasure. just putting you on the spot and saying like, you know, 95% is where we should all aim at. Because obviously we are all human. Yeah. And being human means you have some inbuilt kind of looking things which work against you. Sure. Um, so that's like, gives room for that 5%. Where would you say you are now in your life? Um, from your 20s whereabouts were you in your 20s to now if you were putting a numerical number on it oh my 20s I was I was 10% who I should have been yeah yeah maybe even less than that maybe even less than that um, now I probably put about 60% I've got a long way to go what are you working towards in the next 10-15 years in like your professional personal life that's going to help you kind of move on um, you, what do you mean like in a, in a professional sense well or- professional and personal I guess to try and yeah, what are you up to in the next 10 years? And also, how is that going to feed into... Well, getting... the next 10 years, I definitely don't want to own a business. Because um, okay. I, I hate that. Um, <laughs> but I want to, yeah, I want to go to business and then sell it. And then I want to spend, um, I want to write. Thank you. Um, I write a lot. I'd love to write. Um, I'd love to speak more. Um, 
I need, I want to get involved more in the things that I'm passionate about, which is helping people become the best that they can be, telling people the truth. And really the only thing that really matters to me, and again, it's a terrible cliche, but it's true, um, is I want to make sure that I'm my son's hero. And I want to make sure that I'm my daughter's hero. Mm. And that's it. Whatever I do next, as long as it fits into that very narrow descriptive bucket, I'm, I'm good with it. I have, I have no, you know, designs on earning a certain house or a certain amount of money. It's, it's fine. As long as the rent's paid, I'm good with that. Um, but if in 10 years time, me and my son calls me his hero, then I'm good. Well, mate, I'm sure he will do. And um, yeah, anything you want to write, I'd love to read. So keep cool. us informed. Thank you, man. And, yeah, it's been a pleasure, mate. Yeah, pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much.